Well, last week, Nathaniel gave you a, a break as he diverted uh, from our trek through the book of Galatians. Uh, if you're new to our church, what we like to do here is go through books of the Bible, uh, verse by verse, sometimes chapter by chapter, and uh, just kind of try to get at what the author intends to communicate. So uh, we're going to be in Galatians chapter 5 this morning, starting with verses 13 and going through verse 15. If you're new to the Bible, it's going to be on page 826 in the, in the Pew Bible there. And uh, the big numbers are going to be your chapter numbers, and the small numbers are going to be your verse numbers. So you can follow along with me there. Although I am going to throw you a curve this morning, all right? I'm going to give you the map before we get started. Uh, we're actually, we're doing verses 13, 14, and 15. But what happens here is uh, verse 13 is kind of a, a topical verse, or, or it's a concise version of what comes after. And so verses 14 and 15 are a little bit like commentary on verse 13. Verse 13 has all of it in it, and then Paul kind of fleshes it out a little bit real quick, right? So uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to work backwards. I'm going to start at 15 with a portion of 13. Then I'm going to go to 14 and then 13. So 15, 14, 13. So we're just going to work backwards through it. All right, y'all with me so far? Great. Um, so before we get into the text, uh, I'm going to turn there myself. And then uh, I'm going to read it to, a, read it to you. And you can read with me. And then uh, I'll pray. And we'll, we'll get to it. Galatians 5, starting with verse 13. For you, will, you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Father, we thank you that indeed we have uh, made the transition from slavery to sin to your sons, adopted in Christ Jesus. We thank you that he has lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died, and that by professing our faith in him, we too are unified to him in his death, burial, and resurrection. And in this life, we get to foretaste the pleasures that are at your right hand forevermore. We get to have the joy of knowing you. Lord, we thank you that we get to look forward to the day where we step through the portal of death and into your presence. Where we can come to your table and eat and break bread with the Son whose body was broken for us. Lord, speak to us through your word this morning. Help us to hear and understand faithfully. Spirit, we need your help this morning. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, earlier this week, I was having a conversation uh, with some folks from the church, and we were reminiscing on uh, that wonderful time in life when you're about to get your driver's license. Now, for me, this was a big deal. I mean, driving was going to be awesome. You know, you could, it was kind of this ticket to go and do the things you wanted to do. Mom and Dad didn't have to be there. I was going to have that ticket, that license. Uh, and one of the things that happened to me when I was 15, I was very privileged. Uh, my grandfather made a deal with me that if I would paint his house, he would give me his old work truck. So obviously, I agreed to that. Uh, I actually, was when I thought about this, I only ended up primering about half of the house, but uh, he was gracious, uh, even despite my lack of work, and he gave me the truck. So before I got my license, there was a six-month period where 
You know, every day you take out the truck and you wash it. You pull it in the garage and you wax it. And you just repeat this all week. And there's lots of times in the garage really caring for uh, this truck. Well, after I got my license and got on the road for a while, I realized it really was a work truck. <laughs> um, and no matter how much I washed it or waxed it, um, it wasn't going to be super nice. had lots of rust. Its color was brown. It was a 1987 Ford Ranger, if that, if that helps you. Um, but it was, it was pretty old, and, but I loved it, um, and I had a deal with my mom. She used to help me pay for parts and insurance and whatnot, and, and the deal was I was free to drive the truck and to use the truck as long as I took care of it. I was free to use it as long as I took care of it. Well, after a few years of driving my, this old work truck, it came to be a bit of a routine that at least once a week it would break down. <laughs> and so I would have to acquire the parts and the right people because I know nothing about cars uh, to help me fix it and get it back on the road. So oh, I guess, I don't know, a few months went by and this was the routine. So it breaks down one time and I got it sitting in the driveway for about three weeks. And my mom says to me, if you don't take care of the truck, I'm going to get rid of it. Now, being the uh, pompous teenager that I was, I thought to myself, uh-huh, sure. She was recalling this deal from way back when. that I was free to drive the truck and use my license as long as I took care of it. Well, I didn't take care of it. I let my truck sit for a few more weeks. And then one morning I awoke, to, and to my surprise, no truck in the driveway. My mom had sold my truck. You see... The freedom of having a vehicle came with constraints. I think that that's true of any kind of freedom. That it has restraints, it has limits or boundaries. Perhaps if you too have your license, uh, this might help you. Uh, try driving 151 miles an hour down 151 out here. And, and just do it consistently. It's not going to end well for you, right? I mean, you're free to drive. You have your license to drive, but within limits within the speed limit because you're going to get a ticket and within just the, the limit of common sense, right? Because you'll probably die if you go that fast out here. Freedom comes with constraints. Or think of it this way. Uh, you live in the land of the free. Um, perhaps you stroll into a bed, bath, and beyond with my wife and you decide that you like a, a certain bed comforter set and you just pick it up and tell them that you're taking it and walk out without paying. Can't do that, right? That's stealing they're going to persecute you. You're going to get in trouble. You're free, but there's limits to the freedom. Or try bearing false witness at a trial. There's freedom, but there's constraint. Maybe you want to think of it like this. Uh, if you're a musician or a piano player, uh, you have the aptitude, right? And so you want to get better at the piano. And so you practice, practice, practice. Many, many years practice on the piano. This practice is a restriction or a constraint. It's a limit on your freedom. There are many things that you can't do if you devote yourself to practicing the piano. But if you have talent, the discipline and the limitation of practicing the piano will unleash your ability that would otherwise go untapped. What have you done? You've deliberately lost your freedom to engage in some things in order to release yourself to a richer kind of freedom, to accomplish other things. Now, I do want to have a nice little caveat where I say, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that discipline and restrictions 
uh, are always going to yield uh, the most positive results. Uh, for instance, if I decided I was going to try and be an NFL football player, I could practice, practice, practice all I want, and it's just not happening. I don't, I don't know if you noticed, I'm kind of small, um, not going to work out for me. But disciplines and constraints used rightly in accord with our nature are going to liberate us. They're only going to liberate us when they fit our nature and our capacities. A fish, because it absorbs oxygen from water rather than from the air, is only free if it's restricted and limited to the water. If we put it on the grass, its freedom to move and even live is not enhanced but destroyed. The fish dies if we do not honor the reality of its nature. My point here is that in many areas of life, freedom is not the absence of restrictions, but it's finding the right ones, the liberating restrictions, those that honor the reality of our nature. See, our problem is often finding the right restrictions. See, after the fall, when Adam ushered sin into the world and it fractured everything, our nature was distorted a little bit. We began forsaking the law of God in order to create our own restrictions, our own constraints. We thought that we were finding liberty, but instead found death. Adam's failure has trickled down throughout the ages as man has continued to create his own restrictions. And remember, as the fish on the dry land, the wrong restrictions will destroy. But the right restrictions... Well, they'll cause, they'll cause flourishing. Verse 13b and 15. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. If you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. If we live by the cultural adage today that to each his own, then there is no objective moral standard. There's no objective constraint for freedom. And we then become the arbiters of truth. And we make poor judiciaries because our standards are constantly in flux. They constantly change based on us. We fail to meet them or somebody we love fails to meet the standards that we set up. And so we change them. And so we self-justify our morality. We base it on something other than God. This is the pluralism of our culture. That in, the, in, in our culture insists that this pluralism exists by saying what is true for you is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me. But this is inconsistent. It's irrational. It's moral insanity. And it's intellectually dishonest. Inconsistent, at least, for it itself, the, the truth claim that there's no absolute truth, and your truth is your truth, and my truth is my truth. There's no objective moral standard is itself an objective claim to truth. So it's self-defeating because it can't even be validated according to its own principles. It fails practically as well. Think Timothy Keller illustrates this well for us in his book, The Reason for God. He says this, One of the most frequent statements I've heard was that every person has the right to define right and wrong for him or herself. I've always responded to the speakers asking or proposing this question by saying this, Is there anyone in the world right now doing things that you believe they should stop doing, no matter what they personally believe 
about the correctness of their behavior. They would invariably say, well, yes, of course. Then I would ask, doesn't that mean that you do believe there is some kind of moral reality that is there, that's not defined by us, that's defined outside of us, that must be abided by regardless of what a person feels or thinks? Almost always the response to my question was silence, either a thoughtful one or a grumpy one. Defining truth, defining our own constraints, our own restrictions does not work and is ultimately destructive. This is especially true within our church. When we fail to submit to God's revealed constraints, His revealed will, His law, we make our own truth. And we use it to justify our sin, to justify whatever evil we're choosing to do that particular day. Perhaps we, clothe it, we cloak it between or beneath tolerance or the, under the veil of self-discovery. But eventually, like the cows, march unknowingly to the slaughterhouse as we excuse our sin and bicker and fight and divide the church, we march to our own death. You see, freedom in Christ is not an excuse for dissension. It's not without limits. We don't get to make our own constraints. See, freedom in Christ is not a license to sin. Paul, to this point in the letter, has talked all about the law, right? He's been going, you are not under the law anymore, but under grace. Salvation is by grace alone, not by works, right? We've said that he's gone on and on and said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. You can't earn your salvation. Don't be legalist. Don't worry about the law. Don't worry about keeping it. Now it seems as in these particular verses, part of what he's saying is, or he's anticipating is an overreaction. Well, if we're free in Christ and we're free from sin, let us sin all the more. But that's not the point of the text. That's not Paul's point. It's not a license to sin. I do think that sometimes when we define our own restraints, we end up at conflict with one another. And that's where this biting and devouring one another uh, comes from. There's division uh, in the church at Galatia over this and some of the false teaching that's going on. I think about our own situations where uh, we often are divided over uh, issues that um, are not biblical. We find ourselves uh, not divided over uh, theology or over the gospel, but over politics or some other menial thing. Where we're going to spend X amount of dollars, when we're going to do such and such event. Uh, The question that I asked myself when, when I read this text was, who do I need to apologize to? Who have I been biting and devouring? Where have I used my freedom in Christ as a cover for my sin? How do I need to repent? Paul is warning here in verse 15 that unlove or wrong restrictions will not liberate us but destroy us as the fish on the land. Freedom is not the absence of restrictions but finding the right ones. And the right restrictions will produce fulfillment, flourishing, satisfaction, joy. So you might ask, what are the right restrictions? Look with me at verse 14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. 
You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I just kind of talked about how Paul has gone on and on about how the law is not that great and it's not important and all those fun things. And now he's saying, fulfill the law. It's Jesus plus nothing is everything. Don't do anything but believe in Jesus. And now he's turned around and he's telling us, fulfill the law. So you might go, what? I don't understand. It seems that he is contradicting himself. Well, he's not. He, uh, he uses the law in a variety of senses. I'm going to give you three. Um, one sense is it reflects the distinctions of the Mosaic Covenant. So things like the priesthood and the temple and the sacrificial system and circumcision, which is particularly relevant to the Galatians, right? We talked about that um, as he addressed the Judaizers last week. Um, so circumcision, where they're acquiring circumcision for salvation. So he uses it in that sense, where you're under the Mosaic Covenant. Secondly, he uses it to refer to the bondage of sin, the condemning power of the law. And then lastly, he uh, uses it as an obligation to obey the law, the Lord, or a moral code. So, we're to fulfill the law by love, which is not to legalistically earn or merit our salvation, but out of love, freely, out of gratitude, and out of a new nature, out of reoriented desires. Paul is saying that we're no longer under the condemnation of the law. We're no longer in bondage of sin, but we are free. We no longer have to uphold the distinction of the Mosaic covenant with things such as circumcision, but the new covenant of Christ. Our obligation is to love the Lord. You see, freedom is not the absence of limitations and constraints, but finding the right ones. The content of the right limitations are expressed by love for one another. And how we love one another is expressed in the law. Hear this. The content of love is the law. That's a little tricky, right? For me, I thought about that really hard this week. That the contents of love is the law. You see, if we want to ask ourselves, how do I best love God? Well, by living according to the right restraints, his moral code, his character, his holiness, which is revealed to us by what? The law. So how do I love God? By doing the law. Well, if I keep the law, then doesn't that mean I love God? Well, maybe, maybe not. Uh, These are, I think law and love are, are the same content, from two different angles. We're considering them from two different perspectives where the love can be said to be kind of the heartbeat of the law, the why. And then the law itself can be what we do or the, um, the practical portion of the law. It focuses on the acts. But law and love go together. They dovetail. See, biblical love is not abstract. It's not an abstract conceptual blank. It has a definite content which has been specified by God to us in the scriptures. We don't get to make up what love is, God tells us. We don't get to make up our own restraints and say that they are most loving. They are not. They're most destructive and damaging. We cannot decide that God has a marriage wrong, for, for example, and then redefine it the way that we like because we feel that it's more loving. If we do, we replace freedom in Christ with slavery 
to sin. We cloak our sin. We are the fish that's preferring land to water, and surely we will die. The content of love is the law. And the law is an expression of God's nature and God's heart. God's design, he's the one that designed us. He owns us. And so he has the wisdom to know how we are to live. And he has the right to demand that we live that way in accord with his holiness. God's law of love and grace then function as the proper restraints for true freedom. We've said that true freedom is not the absence of constraints, but finding the right ones. And we've said that the right constraints are found in loving one another. Freedom expresses itself through love. But what we need to ask now is, what exactly does this freedom mean and what does it look like? Verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. The gospel turns our conceptions of freedom on its head. Instead of using freedom as a catalyst to satisfy our own desires, Paul tells us that we use our freedom to serve or slave one another through love. Freedom expresses itself in serving and loving others. Those who have the wrong constraints are slaves to their natural desires, whereas those who live in love are liberated to serve others. So slavery to the will of God, then, is perfect freedom. It's only in subjection to God's will or the right restraints that we will find the realization of our deepest desires. That's where we'll find fulfillment, where we'll find flourishing, where we'll find satisfaction. It's where we'll come into our own. It's enjoying God. It's worshiping God. That's what we were created to do. That's where we discover our true nature. When we glorify God by enjoying Him. Typically, people define freedom just rudimentarily as doing what you want to do. And when we live in the flesh, indeed, we do what we want to do. But we desire sin, and so we cloak it with our own restraints. But when we live in the Spirit, when we become a new creation because of faith in Jesus Christ, we get a new heart. And that heart beats as God's heart. And it desires the things of God. It desires God Himself. Do you desire God? Freedom expresses itself in serving And loving others. I think that you see this in relationships. Remember the the piano player. She gives up some of her time. In order to uh, gain a greater uh, proficiency at the piano. I think this can also be seen in our relationships. That we give up some of our independence. In order to gain greater intimacy. I mean when I got married. I learned very quickly. That I was going to have to give some things. That I quite enjoyed in order to attain greater intimacy. Uh, Silly things to you maybe, like going to Taco Bell after midnight and playing video games uh, all day. Uh, But I had to give those things up to serve my wife, to achieve greater intimacy. Or recently, uh, Chelsea and I have had the experience of having a baby. And what that means for us, he's a little over two months now, uh, is sometimes we would like the freedom to enjoy sleeping throughout the night. But uh, because 
we love our baby. Sometimes. Okay, all the time. Because we love our baby, we give up that freedom of sleeping through the night to achieve a greater intimacy. We sacrifice that personal autonomy in order to gain a greater experience of the joy and freedom of love. You see, it's in loving relationships that we most flourish and become ourselves because that's how God has designed us. You see, we find the most joy when we seek the joy of others as our own. It's true in our relationship with God. How can I best love Jesus? By loving others. By fulfilling the law. It's not a love that is um, done in cold obligation. But it's a love that comes with warm, intense, affectionate, white-hot passion for God. We desire to obey God because He's changed us. Because we love Him. Because in Christ we have been made free. Free from the law. For the law. The law of love. For example, suppose a, a husband asks his wife if he must kiss her goodnight. Her answer is, you must, but not that kind of must. What she means is this. Unless a spontaneous affection for my person motivates you, your overtures are stripped of all moral value. In other words, I want you to kiss me goodnight because you love me and you value me, not because it's your duty. You dishonor me if you're doing it out of duty rather than out of love. We are to delight ourselves in the Lord. We honor God not by saying it is my duty, but by saying it is my joy. It is a joy that cannot be had if we settle for counterfeit pleasures in this world. If we settle for less than the best. Love what C.S. Lewis says here on this. He says, if there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion is crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. See, when we taste the pleasures of the presence of God, nothing else will satisfy. We go to the sea for a holiday, and we recognize that making mud pies in the slums is not that great. The gospel wakes us up so that we desire the sea instead of the slum. Or if you're like me, maybe you like this a little bit, the steak instead of the ham sandwich. We desire those good things. We desire the feast of God. Do you desire God? Freedom expresses itself in loving others. And our love for God manifests itself in our loving of others. We love others by having an overflow of joy in God that causes us to gladly desire to meet the needs of others by seeking our joy in the joy of one another. 
maybe another way, I'm not loving because I seek your joy. I'm loving because I seek your joy as my own. Jesus does this. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. What joy? He was perfectly happy, perfectly content within the Trinity before the foundations of the earth. He was good. He didn't need to go to the cross in order to be happy with the Lord, in order to have joy. So what was this joy before him? Our joy. The joy before him was our redemption. He sets us an example as he serves us. Now the word in Greek that is translated serves throughout the New Testament is the same word for slave. And I prefer to translate it slave here, so that's what I'm going to do. In case you're like, that's not what this says. What's he doing? Uh, He sets us an example for us when he slaves for us. I'm going to read uh, Philippians 2, 1 through 13, because I think that uh, it articulates this a little bit better than I can. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, of a slave, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is working within you, both to will and to work His good pleasure. Serve as Jesus served. Seek your joy in the joy of others. Jesus served us. He slaved us that we might become slaves of righteousness. That we might come into the feast of God and drink from His rivers of delight. In the Old Testament, there uh, are laws given to Moses. And the first ordinance given to Moses after the Ten Commandments is, is a beautiful picture of what it means to serve or slave our Lord out of love rather than mere duty or responsibility. It's in the 21st chapter of Exodus in the first six verses of that chapter. The verses read as follows. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children. I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, 
and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. Don't know what an awl is. I didn't. It's a really sharp, pointy object, which apparently is used to bore out the, the, the ear holes of, of slaves, I suppose. But it would mark them as the master's slave. You see, freedom isn't life without restraint. Freedom is finding the right restraints. It's coming into our own. It's loving one another. It's doing what we were designed to do, bringing glory to God. It's desiring God, enjoying Him as we seek the joy of others as our own because we know that God is glorified in that. The purpose of Christian freedom is for believers to do exactly as the Hebrew slave did. Permanently surrendered his constraints or his own version of freedom to the master that he loved. Christian, do you willingly give up the pleasures of this world, the counterfeit gods, the service of yourself, which is slavery to sinful flesh, in order to become sons of God, in order to become free in Christ? Have you become freed from sin? Have you willingly began the joyous privilege of being enslaved to God? We find freedom in slavery to a wonderful master. The news is better than that because God treats us not as slaves, but as sons. He's more than a good master. He is our loving father. The all of the Christian is not in his ear, but in his heart. By the energizing power of the Holy Spirit, that new heart beats in unison with the heart of Christ Jesus our Lord. So that our desires are His desires. So that His joy becomes our joy. So that we do what we were created to do. That is, glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. This then is real freedom. The freedom to obey God without restraint and without reserve. It is wanting to please God at every moment. And it is in pleasing God in every moment that we will truly find ourselves. That we will truly come into our own. It's where we will find fulfillment. It's where we will flourish. It's where we'll find satisfaction. Friends, as we prepare to sing our hymn of response this morning, ask yourself, do I... Desire God. Is Jesus my treasure? Do you want to flourish? Do you want to be as the fish in the sea? Or are you flopping around on the grass? Are you headed towards destruction or flourishing and joy unspeakable? Just pray with me. Father, we thank you that you are good. We pray that you fan the flame of our passion for you daily. That as we discover more about you through the word and through your son, Jesus Christ, that we would be people who long to love one another, who delight in the freedom we have in you, the freedom to fulfill the law, the law of love. God, you are so good. And we know that when we live in accord with the design that you have given us, that's where we will find true happiness.
It's in Christ alone that we find our happiness. Thanks be to you that you have saved us and called us your own. That for the joy set before you, you endured the cross and scorned its shame. And that you rose again so that we too shall rise.